Welcome to the Much More Than Medicare podcast. My name is Jay O. I'm the author of Maximize Your Medicare and Certified Financial Planner. Official website for the book is www.maximizeyourmedicare.com. I spend a fair amount of time in the public domain giving interviews, various quotes on media sources. That said, you know, there are limits because basically people want to write limited articles, which is understandable, or have me on for 10 to 15 minutes on some random radio show around the country. That said, it doesn't give a coherent picture of the number of different issues that can affect you. Today, a longer interview with Bob Powell from thestreet.com. I'm a regular contributor there and on his Retirement Daily. Let's get started. insurance, your money, they're all tied together. Um, they're not in silos. And here to talk with me about this is Jay O, author of Maximize Your Medicare. Jay, welcome. Thanks for having me again, Bob. It's a pleasure. So um, where to start about how we put things in silos that ought not to be? Well, I think the fundamental misunderstanding is that your people think about health care, and then it's very easy to just say, well, health insurance is the same thing as healthcare. But in fact, they're really quite different, right? Meaning that health insurance is financial contract, you, health insurance company. There are terms, conditions, there's a cost, there's a receiving of benefits under certain circumstances, you know, which is really different than healthcare. That's going to your doctor for your checkup. That means, you know, 10 adult beverages before 10 a.m. is not a good, you know, health care idea, right? In other words, I tell persons, you know, my father, late father was physician. You know, he was an expert in Gray's Anatomy, the book. Whereas I am dealing with, uh, on health insurance, Medicare, financial planning, financial contracts, cash flows of financial outcomes, you know, which are really two very different things. Nevertheless, it's convenient to kind of put them together and then kind of use them interchangeably. But for persons who are very unfamiliar with the topics, it can it's a, it leads to confusion. And that's why I call it the silo effect, because to try to keep them as separately as possible. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'm always thinking about things in terms of solutions. Right. right. So you've, you've identified this problem. Is there a solution to breaking the silos? Well, I think if you just, for example, just try to keep that in mind first, because that that can lead you to be able to, you know, distinguish. There's so much noise in our society, obviously, that what ends up happening is people, it's very convenient to try to identify somebody who is to blame or something that didn't go exactly as you'd hoped. But if you just keep these two topics separate, you can realize that the carriers, for example, you know, they're, they're going to pay benefits based on the contract, but not outside that contract. And 
the markets and the, there's competition involved. And so that that is an entirely different set of things rather than, you know, my doctor, you know, recommended a particular therapeutic, you know, service. So I think that that is very important because then what ends up happening is people understand is, okay, this is a financial topic. They're commercial sellers. That is also a good thing because there's, those sellers are heavily regulated. They're regulated by the federal government. Their insurance is regulated at the state government. So there's consume, powerful consumer rights that a consumer has, which don't really relate to whether or not, you know, your medical doctor has prescribed a particular medication. But yeah. from there, like I said, when, if you break that, if you can get over that, if we can resolve the fact that these are two different topics, we're less likely to blame the wrong party when something's not exactly what you'd hoped, you know, as far as outcome goes. Yeah. I mean, some of this leads to uh, why it is you do what you do, right? Oh, absolutely, Bob. So, you know, Maximize Your Medicare in its eighth edition, incredibly. Uh, because right from the beginning, what I noticed was the fact that people were re planning for retirement. They knew that Medicare, they didn't know how Medicare worked, et cetera. And then what ends up happening is that the choices they make really had, didn't, when I heard the rationale for why somebody would choose one path or another, really didn't have to do with how healthcare cost planning fit into their retirement plan as a whole. That whole conversation dominated by, of course, Social Security, 401k distribution, required minimum distributions, you know, taxes under retirement, those types of things. Well, just as important, if not bigger, is the fact that healthcare cost planning being a huge component, plus just the fact that as people get older, and we're all getting older, of course, is that, you know, the increased likelihood of, you know, becoming ill and then requiring healthcare services. So from there, from there to try to keep them separate and then proceed, okay, how does Medicare actually work? When do you get, what do you have to pay? When do you get benefits? To what degree, to what extent, and one size doesn't fit all. It's not, you know, one of the main recommendations, one of the main points of Maximize Your Medicare is you cannot call your best friend who now lives in a different time zone. Even if you had exactly the same medical situation, health situation, and the exact same net worth situation, et cetera, still the outcome can be different because they all vary from not location to location. And then also, you, like I said, that has different financial ramifications for different people at different household net worths and concern level. And obviously 2020 being quite an incredible year, kind of changing the landscape, kind of being a catalyst to, oh, I didn't really pay attention to health insurance, health, you know, Medicare, et cetera, I thought it was just an easy thing. Well, now all of a sudden that become on the forefront of people's minds as the pandemic, you know, spread across the country. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, just as a side note, I think about, you know, obviously writing about retirement and I always am fond of saying that it, it's complicated for lots of different reasons, new laws, 
new products, new research, new ways of thinking about things. But of all the things that are complicated about retirement, I think Medicare has to be number one, right? Social Security, it's complicated, but we only choose it once. Or right. uh, RMDs are complicated, but you know, there's there there's a formula. You can you can do it with the help of your financial planner or your uh, custodian. Um, and it's a national law, right? It's not a state by state thing. But Medicare, right? You have to do it each and every year, and it varies from in some cases, right? Depending on where you are. Potentially I think the it's, plans you have state to state. Your your point's excellent. And especially, I think that, like you said, Social Security is chosen once. And then not only that, that certain of the glaring different loopholes, opportunities for especially for married couples at different ages, for example, you know, these these unintended consequences have, have been closed down, if you will. And even the fact that full retirement age has increased, the reality is, is that you can measure very clearly what happens if you delay receiving benefits for one month, for example. It's not a jump. It's not a dramatic change by delaying or receiving from a, a one particular month. And in RMD space, for example, an investment strategy, the reality is, is you can change your approach. Your, your risks can change, your priorities change, transaction costs, you know, being so low at this point that you can easily adjust it on the fly, even as market conditions changes, as your personal priorities change. Medicare, like you point out, doesn't exactly have those features. So on top of the fact that we've got a new language that, you know, people have been watching financial markets or can turn on you know, the street.com and, and get an update on what's happening on financial markets. And you can make adjustments and you've been used to it for decades. The, the, the language has been with you. You've heard it. Under Medicare, the, it's two tricky, two tricky aspects. The first is the language may sound like it has the same words, but it, the mechanism is actually different. And then in addition the ability to change, it exists, but not in an unlimited way as it does in securities markets. I mean, you literally can change your investment philosophy and flip it on its head and turn it around 180 degrees. It'll take one phone call and five clicks, for example. You can't do that under Medicare, not necessarily. And so what ends up happening is, well, now you can understand why it gets doubly confusing because I started out by saying this is actually a financial ramifications matter. Well, okay, well, it's a financial matter. Well, I can pick up the phone and click and change my position that quickly. Under Medicare, a lot more complicated, much more complicated because your ability to switch is restricted. It's restricted by time enrollment rules it can be restricted by your health you know condition meaning there are certain times that you cannot switch into certain into a different configuration and unfortunately that's when that's the opportunity for some parties to say it's not fair this is a trap a bunch of negative things, but the reality is you know, readers maximize your Medicare, hopefully watchers of our of our you know segments, you know, is to help people inform them. 
No, these rules exist for a very specific reason. There's a logic to them, and they actually work in the buyer's favor if they understand the rules. Yeah. If they understand the rules and the flexibilities, then they can get the most benefits in an efficient way, which does make it more complicated, like you pointed out, than thinking through RMD strategy or you know what your investment strategy would be from a taxation point, you know, a tax efficient portfolio. Well, tax laws can change. You can change your portfolio. Under here, your health situation can change. You may not be able to change your configuration as flexibly as you could under and under financial markets. Yeah. So you say understanding the rules and it strikes me. All right. So Medicare sends you the booklet or whatever, however many pages it is, Medicare and you, Right. And uh, and certainly it's a lot to go through. But it always strikes me that the level of misunderstanding about Medicare is is somewhat striking. Right. Especially around the issues of whether Medicare will pay for like long term care, in a, you know, beyond the, the um, 100 days. Um, does that surprise yeah. you at all? Or is, is, do you think it's sort of in line with what you have, have uh, witnessed? Well, no, no, you know, no one's asking Jay. Right. <laughs> the private citizen. Right. Right. That said, I don't think there's any doubt that we've that the changes, the modifications under the American Rescue Plan has greatly helped those persons, will greatly help those persons, depending on your income, household size, location, the health insurance premiums for pre-Medicare persons. It still, however, leaves the question about how to address the long-term care matter. Now, there are so many ripple effects, meaning that really the Medicare does do a very good job if you understand the rules and how to choose the configuration that fits you. It does a very good job as a first line of defense, meaning that if you require healthcare services, the satisfaction on Medicare is exceptionally high. It does not, it should not be confused as long-term care. We don't have a long-term, a coherent long-term care strategy. There are financial contracts, traditional long-term care insurance. There's certainly a number of hybrid life insurance and long-term care hybrid solutions, but they're not really, those are a la carte on a one-off basis that an individual would have to you know, select and choose where actually I tell persons under Medicare, it's far easier under Medicare, meaning that, you know, we have actually consolidated language. We've got known language. We've got, we have goalposts that every Medicare Advantage plan must hit. We might, we have criteria that every Part D plan must hit. Medigap is standardized, regulated. Under long-term care, that is an entirely different thing, right? We've got carrier by carrier, state by state on um, the pricing, the flexibility, and then in certain states, there are partnerships of long-term care and Medicaid to help shield persons' assets beyond particular levels. But my point is, is that there isn't a federal standard. And so as a result, when you have no strategy on an overall basis, and then you also have no, you know, federal standard to how to compare it is a very, very complicated thing for consumers. 
Yeah. And you, not only that, but you can imagine that the, the ripple effect on extended families is enormous because not only is that affecting the person, but it's affecting the adult aged children who have to set aside their work, who have to, who have to set aside their family matters, their own direct family members to help their senior parent. So now you can understand that that affects employment. Now they have to get insurance. Now, in other words, the ripple effects on families, which you can read, but I think that this has made it, you know, very, very complicated. Do I think there should be a national strategy, at least a national strategy? That doesn't mean that the choices would be easy by any means. And we've seen some isolated proposals on how that would work, a framework would work. Whether or not there's that is going to be advanced is a different, you know, topic. I don't think yeah. we're going to resolve that today. Yeah. So the other topic that is always on my mind, Jay, is this notion of the cost of healthcare in retirement. And you are well familiar with Fidelity study that says a 65-year-old couple retiring today would need around three hundred thousand dollars to pay for twenty years of healthcare expenses. Uh, including Part B premiums and deductibles and copays and and whatnot, um, and but but other entities, T. Rowe Price and Vanguard, more recently have come out and said, well, you know, yeah, th there's that number, but it's manageable if you break it down on a year by year basis and uh, and you sort of take out the extreme, uh, you know, uh, costs. I I would agree with the second camp to be candid, and I know that the. Big numbers, when we see them, they grab attention, right? In, in other words, you see a number that's $400,000 that everyone gasps, you know, notably so because that extends to every person irrespective of their resources. But it's not, I also have seen and agree with the idea that, well, you we know we're going to consume $500,000 worth of food, right? That doesn't mean today. <laughs> that doesn't mean today, right? So as a result, I'm not alarmed necessarily. I don't think that necessarily that the cost of normal health care and covering health care costs, meaning Medicare premium, um, Medicare Advantage, which is largely zero at this point, to be candid with you, depending on your location and there are exceptions to that rule. But, and then Medigap, who whose market is very commercially competitive. So again, back to our financial matter, this is these are brutally competitive markets, yeah. meaning the number of sellers with very accurate numbers are competing for person, a market of 60 million people plus. So their pencils are sharp and the markets are very competitive. These things do work in the buyer's favor, which at least control the the idea or you know misunderstanding well i'm being overcharged for this i'm being overcharged for that i know that that's attractive and fun for cocktail party talk but you know commercial reality is that for example if you're 65 and you live in ohio and you're turning 65 and you want to buy uh enroll in medigap i i can find you four, five sellers within three, five, $10 a month, easily. 
easily. So I mean the market and that makes it that's good thing for consumers, meaning they don't have to be as concerned. They know that there's a cost there, but there there's a very competitive market. And if you understand the rules, there's the ability to adjust from Medigap to Medicare Advantage if the financial you know, cost of Medigap become too high. So I would agree with the second camp, which is manageable. If you understand how it works, what your flexibilities under those under particular situations. Yeah, I, I guess everything seems a bit um, uh, onerous if you put things in a present value. So, for instance, <laughs> yeah. if, right, like it, like if you if you own a home and you have real estate taxes of I don't know, say ten thousand dollars a year. I know that may sound high, but you know what's the present value of ten thousand dollars per year over twenty years? Right, where it's 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 a it's a big sum as well. So exactly, and so. That's why I can understand why there is concern, but I'm not overly, I'm not thinking that this is the line item that persons would have to, you know, change their lifestyle. Now, like you correctly point out, persons with different healthcare, health situations, ones that they know are going to create ongoing need for consistent high cost health care services that is different of course then we're talking about trying to control you know what happens depending on those situations and the nature of your health situation will drive decisions as actually they should be driving in every other financial aspect of retirement for example whether to you know, collect social security enroll early for example or for example what your investment portfolio strategy, investment strategy is, whether or not you know how long your time horizon actually is for someone with a disease that cannot be cured, for example, you know that, and I know that's an extreme example, mm. but would change your time horizon expectation. Every aspect would change. In the same way, I might make that same thought to how you consider healthcare cost control under retirement, for sure. Yeah. So a lot of topics on my floating around in my head. One is um, how COVID changes some of this. Um, obviously, longevity declined, right, in the COVID era. Um, right. So we've seen, I've seen some preliminary studies and something like a nationwide that almost a full year of life expectancy decline. The question is going to be for me on Medicare and most specifically on Medigap is whether or not this, so we've had lower usage, right? Because people haven't been as free to go to the doctor or to the hospital. You've not has had many procedure as the number of procedures declined for non-emergency. Or, but that doesn't necessarily, but they, so in other words, some, something that could have been medically necessary, but not an emergency kind of has not been done. So you'll see things like the amount of premium collected has exceeded the amount of benefits paid. And what we're going to see, I'm quite certain, is the return of premium <clears throat> due to something called the medical loss ratio, meaning that the carriers have to spend 80 to 85% of the premiums on claims. And if they do not, 
they need to return the balance. So we're going to have some ripple effects of COVID, but what I think what we're going to also have is the idea that what we're not sure of is how the carriers <clears throat> are going to handle the fact that you've had COVID in the past. Has that changed what their estimate of your healthcare costs will be in the future? That part I don't, don't quite know, excuse me. <clears throat> and we may, we may not know for a while. Right, we, we may not, right now I can give you kind of an update, which is I've not seen dramatic adjustments to premiums. We've not seen that, we've seen very controlled in rate increases over the last calendar year. Yeah. We've not seen a huge adjustment to underwriting that I can tell. Meaning that there are certain things that I know up front, meaning that I know that particular carriers ask particular questions. So actually my firm GH2 Benefits, we have a subscription site called GH2 Unfiltered, where I'm actually making some comments that I'm, of course, not really comfortable, not really able to say out in public, you know, in a three-minute segment. Right. But basically, there is a difference. So I, I mentioned that Medigap is this competitive. That doesn't mean that I'm suggesting them all equally. As a as a as a practitioner, the answer to that is no. As as a guidance counselor, if you will, to choosing amongst Medigap plans. The answer isn't no, that it's just because they're close on a price doesn't mean I just blindly choose the cheapest, not necessarily because of the fact that the premium of the market is this competitive. But under COVID, <clears throat> the number of different outcomes, uh, you know, still yet to be seen. But again, I kind of think that it has to do with flexibility, meaning that I'm not sure whether or not Medigap underwriting is going to be more complicated or more difficult in the future. Mm. So as a result of that, you need to consider kind of your ability to switch that we had mentioned earlier in the conversation about it's not a trap. It's not, you know, th this negative thing. These rules existed prior to COVID, meaning how underwriting works, how do we accept it in the Medigap? when you can change from Medicare Advantage into Medigap. And then there are state specific rules which can improve upon your choices. Complicated suit for sure. Yeah. So we promised a wide ranging interview perhaps uh, based on the, your responses and what it <laughs> triggers in my brain. The, the, the one thing that, you know, that we often talk about in the financial media is um, the Medicare trust fund. And, and mm. while we often write about social security trust fund becoming insolvent in a very short order, the problems perhaps are even more significant for the Medicare trust fund. And when I look at my medic, my statement, and I think about how much I've put into Medicare and how much I'm likely to receive to me, it always strikes me as a huge, huge imbalance. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see because one of the recent proposals is to drop the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60. So in addition to that, 
it's going to be interesting to see how estimates actually work out. Meaning that if all of a sudden instantly we drop the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60, an estimate that I read this past week would mean instantly 24.5 million Americans would be instantly eligible for Medicare. So they've paid into Part A, meaning the Medicare trust fund that you mentioned, right, as part of the payroll tax, et cetera. Then, you know, there's a Medicare tax that would go into that is what people are already paying today. But now if under this new proposal, you'd have an additional 24.5 million in addition to the 63 million, approximately 63 to 65 million who are currently enrolled in Medicare. So that draws questions about the Part A trust fund. I'm not as, well, I'm still concerned, of course, because the way that Part B works is you're paying that Part B enrollees, they pay a premium, but that's still not full coverage for the cost of what Part B would be if you had to pay privately or what the, the federal government is actually distributing, right? In other words, Part B is paid partially from your premium, but also from the discretionary budget part of the U.S. government. Mm. So now we're going to have 24.5 million more people. The counter arguments would be, okay, the 61-year-olds are in good health. Therefore, they're paying $148.50 today and not, not really filing for claims. Yeah. That part, I'm not an expert in budgetary finance, you know, like the CBO, I'm sure will have those estimates coming out if they've not, you know, they're, or they're working on it now. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. So the age 60 thing is part of Biden care. Anything else about Biden, Biden care <laughs> that uh, is worth noting? Well, I think that on, on, and this is the American Rescue Plan, you know, formally, I've called it Biden care because I always mess up the you know exact name or ARP or ARPA or how, how people are going to call it. This is um, I think that what's also going to it it's not necessarily that specific. What by what the American Rescue Plan, what I'm going to call Biden Care, has done already is it has notably changed a number of different situations for people in their early sixties. Because for these persons, people have been delaying retirement because a married couple, one person is Medicare eligible, one person is not. And so you can easily see, you'll know a, a, a couple, a married couple, one of the persons has stayed at work with the primary reason being that they wanted to retain health insurance for their spouse. Well, all of a sudden, depending on financial planning inputs and, and as a result of Biden care, now all of a sudden that can be eliminated in certain instances as a concern mm. because the degree of the tax credit is so large that a 60-year-old 60, 60 person, 63-year-old person in Arizona and Florida just lets use two, two diff states with difficult health insurance premiums now reduced by this 80, 90%. I've seen, like I've said in the past, 63-year-old person in very good health 
that can be as low as zero. That is absolutely possible. So that in now, if that person now can be covered, and now the 67-year-old spouse doesn't have to work, that entirely changes their decision-making process of what is possible. What was not possible before can be possible now. Now, that's not a blanket statement. Obviously, that has to do with person's income, household size, and location, but it can be that dramatic. You're going down, if we put in, you know, take out our crystal ball, you know, which doesn't work, but <laughs> you know, our crystal ball can, you know, speculate to some degree because we've seen a preview, which is that it's going to be more complicated because, well, then let's ch change your tax rates. Let's change capital gains tax rates. Now, all of a sudden, okay, now this person, now if we take my silly example, my simple example, this married couple in Florida, for example, has now forgot, has now decided, oh, we can retire. But then in order to pay for household, because we have retirement savings and other resources, et cetera, to get us through the next couple of years before we claim social security, for example. Well, now all of a sudden you can see the ripple effects and why you know, we're so busy these days, which is now we need to think through what's the source of where we're gonna draw this income, this extra money in order to pay for expenses during the time that we're going to wait for claiming social security because now for okay are we taking capital gains that would be subject to tax are we going to move to a roth conversion and do it now because we think that we think that um you know capital gains or tax rates are going to be higher later and then so now you're going to have a number of different you know pretty complicated ripple effects nevertheless interesting one interesting times as people try to balance out these changes which are which have occurred as a result of the of Biden care and the American rescue plan as a in addition to changes in how we're going to fund you know these changes so that will be this balance the next set of changes and fairly complicated ramifications to people's retirement planning so we've covered a lot of ground and uh, what else haven't we talked about that we ought to? Well, I think that we've touched on most, Bob, and, you know, of course, you know, great appreciation to you for the time, you know, to, to have this expanded conversation today. I think that that is the main thing, though, which is to keep in mind that, for example, under, under the American Rescue Plan, Biden Care, it's a very simple example, which is, it's easy to just say, I'm very happy that my health insurance premium has declined from $1,000 a month to $200 a month. We need to be very careful in handling on how we get there, meaning that make sure that you qualify for those in the right way. That I've had examples, real life examples, that people try to just get the extra subsidy so what ends up happening, they, since they don't understand that it is an income tax credit, you are by getting this subsidy on a running basis, you're making statements to the IRS, mm -hmm. right? Which means, and in the fine print is, and but it is there. It's fine print, but it is there. 
you're making st certain statements to the IRS under the penalty of perjury, for example, which is you know onerous language, obviously. But it does point out the fact that these are financial topics, that this is a tax credit. So as a result, people have to put on their thinking caps a bit to understand that every input then to taxes will affect the degree of the advanced premium tax credit, this, the health insurance subsidy. That's not to dissuade or discourage someone because it's still so important, especially in, you know, people underestimated its use or underestimated the importance of health insurance in someone's financial life. Well, COVID was, you know, obviously a wake up call to many. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, it's, it's always a pleasure chatting. Um, I so look forward to our chances to talk about this topic that I think ultimately helps a great many people. Irrespective of, of net worth class, Bob, I think that, you know, it's very important and I think with also, you know, you and what you and I and you've been so good about is that our, our conversations may look and feel like there are persons with substantial assets, 401k, um, you know, IRA. Well, the reality is that many Americans don't have big cushion retirement cushions. But the reality is, is in a way, our conversations, our message actually would help them even more. Mm -hmm. Meaning that in your communities, your social groups, hopefully, you know, as a result of vaccinations, we can recongregate where with our friends and our relatives, that there are many people that don't have the luxury of retirement saving, don't have these flexibilities, these high quality problems that, you know, you and I generally speak about under your, under your platforms, for example. But a lot of my time is, in fact, used to help those persons without the resources. Because if anything, the resources, the information that we're actually sharing is actually more important and more impactful to the persons with fewer resources that literally, you know, depending on your state and the, and those persons, and everyone knows, every one of our watchers, our viewers, our listeners, we all know, even if that's not us, we know one degree of separation, someone who does, is affected in that way, their insurance poor, or they, they are run, they're running up high out of pocket, out of pocket costs due to healthcare, Sharing that information to the next person not only helps you know, the general, the existing population, but someone I'm very certain that everyone will know. Yeah, I, I have to mention this to you, Jay. So I was at my daughter's uh, college graduation uh, uh, earlier in May, mm. and someone asked me what I did for a living, and I told him that I write about retirement. And he asked me who my audience was. So, you know, do you write for the wealthy or the middle class or low income? And, and ultimately, I said, you know, well. Ultimately, the people that need the most help are those in the middle class and low income. The, the wealthy, they'll be fine. They have access to advisors. They have assets, et cetera. Um, but the people that need the most help are the people who, you know, who don't have help. So I absolutely think I tell that to my to the person that do have some notable assets. I have conversations with them. I'm helping them clear up annoyances, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> inconvenience, <laughs> ultimately 
that is to optimize it. They they don't look at it that way. No, of course not. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but they'll, they'll be fine is, either way. <laughs> that that is true. That is true. But there's no no question in my mind that you know the the what those persons can do the way that they can help is by just passing the word to the degree possible to others because it is a very impactful to the majority of Medicare beneficiaries, the majority of persons that don't have a million dollars of retirement assets, for example, that these differences during our conversations can really make, a. obviously, for the 63-year-old in Florida who's decline in expenses is $10,000 a year. That is an enormous amount. And even the well-off will be, you know, their eyes will open and that's how they got that way. In in other words, making sure they knew these facts about details that they could, they could take advantage and not in a, you know, this in a lawful way, this is just the way the rules have changed. Yeah. It's interesting too. I, I serve on, um, my town's, uh, the board of my local council on aging. And people are always asking what they can do to help. And I, and I tell them sometimes, well, become SHIP certified because every year the one person who's in our senior center who's charged with helping people, right, uh, during the um, enrollment period is overwhelmed, right? They're booked up from morning to night. And, and we could use more people who are trained to help some of our senior citizens who in some ways have nowhere else to turn. I, obviously they can turn to you. But, but some of them, right, there's, there's only one of you. <laughs> well, I think that what uh, there are resources out there. I think that one of the only caveat I would have is that what has made it more complicated, even for SHIP, I think, is the information that you and I have shared in our, in our talks today, for example, are, is more about these interaction of specific topics. Yeah. And that, then we're, for me, if I back to my crystal, you know, glaring into my crystal ball, I don't see that matter going away. Yeah. In other words, I don't see where someone's going to be able to take Medicare and set it in its silo and keep it there. Yeah. Because like I said, we've got, we've talked in the past about Irma. We've talked, <clears throat> for example, And now you can understand that person, and I've been talking, you know, during our conversation here about investment strategy, where the, where the money comes from, whether it's qualified, non-qualified, Roth conversion, Roth, Roth contribution, these interactions, in my view, my professional view is that these interactions are going to, you know, continue to exist. And so you have to consider them in combinations. All right, let's wrap it up there. Be sure to like, subscribe, anywhere you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. If you like today's podcast, please be sure to give it a five-star rating. Thanks.